Hello, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to NTT20 Meets Chris Powell. Now, Chris, sitting opposite me, was a professional footballer at Crystal Palace, Aldershot, Southend, Derby, Charlton, West Ham, <laughs> Charlton again, <laughs> Watford, Charlton for a third time, <laughs> and finally Leicester. Um, this is our first NTT20 Meets interview with a former England international. Chris played five times for England under Sven-Jorin Eriksson and was also chairman of the PFA for many years. But most recently, uh, Chris is a manager and that is all EFL, while part of his playing career might have been a bit too Premier League for our liking. Um, Chris has been manager of Charlton, of Huddersfield and most recently Southend. That was a tenure of just over a year which ended towards the end of March. Chris, it's a real pleasure to sit down with you. How are you? (laughs) I'm very well, thank you. I'm... uh... I'm looking forward to the summer and uh, see what the future brings. So uh, I'm really well, thank you. Yeah, so as I mentioned, you, you left Southend just at the end of March, so we're probably six weeks out from that. Um, some of the other managers that we've sat down with have spoken about how difficult it can be to go from the all-consuming chaos of being a football manager um, to, to being unemployed, essentially. <laughs> For some of them, it was the first time they've been out of the, of the game since they were youth team players. Mm. So you're a bit more experienced in your managerial career and you have experienced this before. Um, what's the experience been like for you this time? It's a good question because I think people deal with it in different ways. Um, I think the first time when I left Charlton after the, uh, the Chatelet takeover and all what that entailed... Um, it was very hard. Uh, it was virtually the first time I hadn't been involved with a club since I was 16. Mm. So it was a really, really long time of being involved in the game. So I was a little bit not sure what to do. Um, of course, luckily for me, I've been doing bits and pieces of media work over the years. So that, that will always keep you busy. But you have to find ways of sort of filling your time and I think every time it happens to you, <laughs> you don't want it to happen too often, but um, I think you, you have ways and means of dealing with it. I tend to have something I must aim for every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I took up the marathon running, yeah. uh, and I, I did that last year for prostate cancer, but it put me off, so I won't be running that again. Um, but yeah, I, I, I sort of tend to... You, you tend to really have a lot of relief. I think people say, oh, you reflect on what you've done. You can't reflect on it every day. I think that's, yeah. I think that's nonsense. Mm. I think you, you, you do, but that doesn't last for two, three, four months. I think it lasts for a day or two, and you think, okay, I've got to accept it. You move on. Um, but I'll, I will always keep myself busy, you know, even if it's just watching games. Mm. Um, and I'm a Spurs fan so I know that's not really apt for this but <laughs> obviously Champions League yeah. I'm going out to Spain oh fantastic yeah um, I haven't got my ticket yet mind you but uh, <laughs> it's on its way but um, no I, I've, I've been watching a few EFL games I've watched non-league games but then I do other stuff you know I'll speak at schools and colleges I'll keep myself educated I'm going on two courses next year so I make sure that I'm I'm right, mm. but also you always and I think every sort of manager who's out of work will say to you that they'll keep one eye on what's going on, and they'll make sure that their CV and everything's updated and ready yeah. 
to go if the opportunity arises. When you talk about uh, courses that you might go on, you've obviously at this stage maybe have a bit more time to do that sort of thing and, and to get a greater education uh, yeah. than you do when you're at the coalface. Yeah. What sort of courses do you look to do? How, what, what sort of things do you think, well, that, that could be interesting and that could help develop me as a manager? Mm. Is, it, is it football stuff? Is it management stuff? It's a bit of both, really. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 50 this year and um, I feel now's sort of the time to sort of broaden my horizons, mm. not, you know, I've got every qualification football-wise you know, I'm a B, my A, my pro license. Um, I've got a certificate in management, applied management. Um, but I'm also looking at the technical director courses, mm. chief exec course. Um, uh, there's a governance course as well. And um, I'm going to go on those because I yeah. think it's right for me to broaden my horizon. You know, you can't be a manager all the time. I love the game. I've been involved in it in different guises for a long, long time now, what, 34 years, and it's what I do, mm. it's my life, so um, I actually feel I may sort of branch out and do something else yeah. if I don't get back into management. I want to, but we'll see. see we're going to talk later on about a sort of structure that you feel most comfortable managing under. We've mm. spoken to, to other people about the more modern management structures and the more old school management structures where a manager does everything. Yeah. Um, so maybe we could touch on that later, but just as you've brought up those courses, it, it strikes me, I was talking to someone the other day, that there seems to be more of a, an appetite because of the success of certain teams um, to go down the, the sporting director or technical director yeah. route, whatever you call it. Um, and I was thinking the other day, it, it must be interesting for someone like yourself who's had such experience in the game and understands all aspects of it to think well if there's a, a great appetite for it but because it's a relatively new role in English football there isn't really a pool of no. people with any sort of experience or, or with CV to think of so it makes a lot of sense to, to at least look into it certainly does and I think we sometimes we're quite insular in England that we think well that's <laughs> you can say that the way, yeah, <laughs> this is the way and that's it when for years Clubs abroad, we know Germany are famous for it, but it, it happens in other countries that they tend to maybe get an, an ex-player. You know, you look at Ajax, they've got van der Sar and, uh, as a technical director, and in Germany it tends to be one of their sort of players to go into it. Because they understand the culture of the club, and um, then they realise that they're the actual bridge from the football element to the business element. There's always got to be someone like that and for years we haven't had that here or we've tended to just lean on the chief exec or the club secretary. It's not right. Mm. You know, it should be someone, I'm not saying they don't have the knowledge, because many of them do, but I think it's got to be someone who um, understands, listen, if they understand the pressures of what the actual team and the manager's going through, great, um, but they can relate that side of things to the business side. They're two totally different things. But I think we tend to think, well, business people know all about that, so when they come in and make football decisions, that's great. There's got to be a balance. Mm. And you're right, I think there's an appetite now in this country. We've had it at the senior levels with the FA. I think we need it in 
all aspects of football. I really do. I think there's got to be bridging the gap and an understanding of the role, and I think it's it's going to be it's going to happen. I suppose there's a, there's a sort of utopia where even if it might see managers ceding a bit of responsibility for stuff, which many might not be comfortable with, given as you say that the nature of the, the history of the English game. Yeah. At the same time, if you, if you can reach this this sort of uh, situation where you've got a structure in place that works, that has accountability across all departments rather than just on the manager, it could work well from a, a managerial sort of job expectancy point of view. Mm-hmm. If more teams can have this this more clear-headed thinking and understanding of roles, then it wouldn't always just fall on the manager every no. time a, there's, a, there's a losing streak. And that's why I think that's, that's why it has to happen. I think um, all managers will tell you at your interview and during that process, you tend to agree on a strategy, on the way it's going to work, and you walk out of there as a manager and in the first few weeks or first hundred days, as we all know, is very important, um, you tend to think, right, this is it, this is the way it's going to work. What tends to happen is, that's all great at the start, and most most managers, you, you sort of get a bit of a honeymoon period and you win a few games and everyone's happy. It's when it doesn't work it's when it falls by the wayside because you've had a number of injuries or you haven't won the games and then the strategy may change and as a manager you tend to think well where did that come from because we didn't agree this and that's where people got hold the nerve and people got to say well this is what we agreed Um, you know we want the the team to play in a certain way or we want uh, young players to come through or you know we want a top 10 finish and if you finish ninth and then they turn around and say it's not good enough then that's not the strategy mm. so I do feel clubs like Brentford I always mention them um, I think they've got it right you know in that okay they finished mid-table but I'm sure looking at them from the outside in Everyone has a responsibility with regards to recruitment, with regards to uh, how they play, uh, with regards, and everyone agrees to it. And if the manager, like it was Dean Smith, Dean moved on, and now it's Thomas Frank, who was already at the club, he understands what's going on, he takes care of the team, but everything else is taken care of by the structure and the infrastructure and people doing their roles, then the team manager won't feel Mm. nervous about his job. He will get on doing what he's there to do, and I can't see any other way now. You know, it sounds like, a bit corporate, but it's, it's basically about having heads of department, right, within a football club, and and everyone understanding exactly which part of it they're in charge of. And for the for the manager, we're still we still subscribe to the cult of the manager being yeah. the most important. But for that person in that role, that is coaching and and yeah. the match day essentially. Yeah, and you shouldn't be involved in anything else I feel now um, you're right Colton the manager has always been a big thing in England that is this all encompassing uh, know it all of everything you know I tell you from my very first role at Charlton I was helping the first team at Leicester and doing the under 21s as it was then 23s and I got the job I got interviewed uh, on a shortlist got the job and my first day I, I can sit here now and say I didn't know what was going on <laughs> you know I turned up 
this is your office. I went in and within minutes, I must have had a stream of people knocking on the door saying, what about this? What about the training today? What about... And I was, I was just looking at them saying, just do what you normally do. And I, when they left, I sat there and I was thinking, I've got to come up with answers all the time, constantly. Yeah. And people don't, I think sometimes people don't realise that role that the manager has um, in a traditional sense is too much. Mm. It's too much, you know, and, and no matter what level you're at, I know, you know, the, the top leagues, they have more people there, more staff, more heads of department, specialists, which is right. But lower down tend to be maybe three members of staff mm. and you have to do everything. And I think that has to change. You know, you um, the stress that comes with it and the uh, responsibility that comes with it, I think is, is, is too much. Um, but it's a game we all love. It's a game we all want to get right. And, you know, if we have to change the general structure of things, to move forward, to have best practice, then do it. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into uh, your managerial experiences, but I'm always just so excited to listen about current managers' playing experiences because <laughs> you had a hell of a career, and, and I'm hoping that we can just run through it because just doing, doing my research beforehand, it, it, the first thing that strikes you is, is, uh, is you, start, you start playing in, in Epsom. Is that right? And and maybe yeah. aged age seventeen or eighteen, Crystal Palace come calling. I mean, can you cast your mind back? And that must have been the most exciting thing in the whole world. Yeah, it was a little bit, little bit different. I think it's got lost in translation. <laughs> I was uh, at school um, doing my uh, O levels as they were then, um, and I was playing for. I was playing for everyone. I was playing for the school. I was playing for the county. I was playing for. Uh, a Sunday team I was playing for Epsom and Yule um, and I had to stay on for an extra year because I had a funny birthday and I, I stayed on in the sixth form um, at, uh, at Range Park and um, Crystal Palace we had a really successful school team um, Graham Stewart was part of that team who obviously played for Chelsea yeah. um, where we are now and um, a lot of teams used to watch us. We had players at Fulham, at Spurs, and Crystal Palace chose three of us to go and train. So I started to train at Palace. Um, There's an amazing group of players there at the time as well. Um, yeah. Southgate, yeah. I think. Gareth was a year below me. Yeah. But we're still good friends now. Um, Richard Shaw, John Solarco were in the year above me. Um, and then I got taken on as a, a, a scholar. Uh, but my very first game at left back, I was a left winger. But we didn't have a left back. So we were playing Southampton away. And uh, the coach, Alan Smith, who I still know really well now, said, oh, can you play left back? I said, yeah, fine. I didn't realize that Southampton then had a youth team of Alan Shearer, Matt Letizier, the Wallace, Twins. Oh my God. Uh, Francis Bernali. I mean, 10 of the 11 became pros wow. of Southampton. We lost 3 1. And I was marking Letizia. <laughs> and we still talk about it now whenever we see each other. Um, 
but that was my f- sort of first experience and then I got taken on as a as an apprentice for two years and got signed pro and that was the start of my journey. I read that when you left Crystal Palace after two years or so to move to Southend, mm. that they were quite keen to, to keep you as, as a young yeah. player. Was it a case of being very clear that you needed to just go and play senior football and not wait around too long? You've done your research early, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, what happened was um, I got a bit frustrated, got into the first team at 18, um, played a couple of games, um, but wasn't really progressing. And um, I got sent on loan to Aldershot. It was brilliant. Eye-opener, brilliant, brilliant two months for me. Um, I mean, the club were on, on their knees then. Um, you know, I was taking stuff from the medical department at Palace. Shouldn't say this now, but as many years ago, I was taking strappings and stuff. They didn't have any money, um, but the camaraderie just taught me a lot about first team football and the desperation to win on a Saturday. My first game away at Lincoln, we won one nil. Um, I just felt like someone on the journey home, and I thought I want more of this. And I know. I'd love it to be at Palace, you know, I'm a South London boy, I wanted it to happen there, but it didn't. But I played against South End for all the shot, uh, left wing that day, we lost 5-0, I got man of the match. Wow. And David Webb, the manager of South End, didn't forget that. And in those days, when you got to the end of your contract, um, it had to go to a tribunal. It wasn't like now, if you're over 24, you could pick and choose. Mm. And uh, I had a choice of Birmingham, Brighton, or South End at the time. I ended up going South End because I just wanted to play week in, week out. That that feeling, that euphoric feeling, never left me, and I thought I want more of it. Well, you stayed there for for a, a good spell, so much so that you were voted a, an all-time cult hero <laughs> by the South End fans yeah. um, a, a, as a player. So a, a brilliant choice, I suppose, in the end because. Um, you moved up the leagues as well with Southend. You won promotion, I think, from the to the old second division. Yeah. Um, and I know you had quite a few different managers around oh that spell God. as well. I, I've seen one of them is Barry Fry. <laughs> so I'm wondering at what stage of his character progression he was there, because as a as a younger member of the football media, I know what I see now, and I've heard a lot of stories. So, wow. what was that experience like? Well, put it this way. Um, yeah, I had six managers in five years at Southend. So Dave Webb was the first one. And if David Webb walked in here now, I would still address him as boss. Uh, I would ask him whatever he wanted I would do. Um, he was a hard taskmaster, but knew what he wanted. He did the same things every single day, but he prepared us. Um, he gave us a real tough edge. A mixed bag of characters, but we got on the football pitch and we became a team. They got promoted from League Two as it is now to League One. I joined and we had the momentum and we got promoted again to, as you said, Division Two, which is the championship now. (laughs) And we survived. Um, Sadly, Dave moved on. And then I had uh, Peter Taylor. Brilliant coach, Steve Thompson, Colin Murphy, but Barry Fry was the one really that kind of put the club on the map. The team did, but 
the way Barry is and the way Barry acts and the way he was then, we were forever in the news because he would talk us up. He would do some madcap things, some unprintable, and un I won't I won't say because I still see Barry now. Yeah. Um, I mean, at one point we had something like 30 players, you know, for a club like that. But he kept us all going. You know, pre-season was. I think we played 14 games pre-season just so everyone could get a game <laughs> you know some weeks we'd turn up for training and we'd be playing the army 11 because he was doing it as a favour for someone I mean it was mad we trained in Dunstable because he lived over that way <laughs> so instead of him coming to Southend we had to go to him um, but he talked us up and he talked up the good players he talked up Stan Collymore and Stan joined for next to nothing, sold him for two million mm -hmm. in six months. Ricky Otto, he signed when he went on to Birmingham. Real talent, but no one was really talking about him. Sold him for 800 grand. Um, you know, he talked myself up at the time. There was talk of me going to West Ham, to Spurs. I nearly joined Spurs, which was a big regret of mine being a Spurs fan. Mm -hmm. um, but it never happened. And then Barry left. But in the end, I moved on. But it was great. It was a it was a club that was on the rise, and um, you know we were a, a side that uh, many looked upon as uh, a real talented team. Mm. And um, you know Barry would get players from non-league, put them together, and make them league players. He's and, been doing uh, that for his whole whole career. What an amazing football life yeah, he's had, as well as knack. being such a well-known character. A real knack for that, you know, and that that's just from his contacts and taking a gamble but taking a a real sort of clever gamble on on players and um, yeah I uh, I forever cherish that time with 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 him you know we used to play on Friday nights as well oh wow which boosted the crowds you can't do that now because I think you look at if you're playing Rochdale the fans coming down on a Friday evening but basically South End is a lot of West Ham, a lot of Spurs fans. Mm. So the West Ham fans would watch Southend on a Friday, then go and watch West Ham on a Saturday. Yeah. But um, it was a, it was a great time, you know. And it was a real camaraderie and synergy between sort of the team and the area. We yeah. used to go out locally, and it was fine. Yeah. Um, you don't really get that these days, no. you know. But uh, a real real good part of my career until I moved on. Talk me through the, the failed move to Spurs, your, the team that you support. Mm. Um, why did that fall through? Was that down to you or, or down no, to people above you? It's down to Jurgen Klinsmann, believe it or not. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't believe it, so yeah. you're going to have to well, tell I'll me. I'll tell you, yeah. Basically, um, as I said earlier, uh, I was at the end of my contract, so clubs could talk to you, but then it went to a tribunal. I was going on a holiday to Portugal my wife and a couple of friends and my phone rung it was Steve Perriman who was number two to Ozzy Ardiles mm. so he said oh Chris it's Steve Perriman and straight away my face you know the beam and my wife's looking at me going we've got to go we've got... I said Steve Perriman she's going who? <laughs> yeah alright I'll tell you another time <laughs> and he said oh, we've watched you all season we're really interested I said look I'm just about to go away he said no it's fine um, you're on our list to we need a left back um, we, we really feel you could do the job well 
you can imagine what I was like. I had the best holiday of my life. Um, and he said, you know, we'll call you in two, three weeks' time. I got back from a holiday, waited by the phone, didn't ring. And in those days, it wasn't really like it is now. You know, an agent can ring, the Instant club. Instant messaging. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like that. Um, and I had to go back to Southend for pre-season, but I didn't sign a contract. And they wanted me to sign, but I knew if I signed, I would cost more. Yeah. I kept saying, no, no, I'm leaving my options open. And then uh, Spurs were signing players. But then they signed Jürgen Klinsmann. And of course, he cost a lot of money. Yeah. In fact, he took all their money. <laughs> and I got a call, Spurs saying, we can't do it. Um, Unfortunately, we've had to sign Jurgen Klinsmann, so my fan head was going brilliant. <laughs> yeah. My player head was saying, I've just missed out on you know, yeah. my dream, dream move of wearing a white shirt of White Lane, but you know, Jurgen was good. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> um, you, you found a, another club in a white shirt from Southend, which is Derby County, and talk about Barry Fry getting good fees for players. You, you went for 750 grand, mm. um, and one promotion to the Premier League with Derby mm. with Jim Smith as the manager <laughs> and Steve McLaren as assistant That's manager cool, yeah. what was that what was that team like what made that team so good first off I I was meant to go to Manchester City the week before Alan Ball was manager and they failed with three bids um, of 500 grand and they couldn't spend any more I was devastated I thought I've missed my chance of going to the, the big league. As all players, I would say to you, all players in the EFL, in all those divisions, but especially if you're lower down, you want to you want to play as hard as you can. Um, but Derby came in um, towards the end of January, and it was a big move for me. In respect of, I went from being sort of a big fish. You know, at Southend, where I was looked upon as captain, and to go into a club where I didn't care about that, and it was a club that's steeped in history. Um, it's a one club city. Everyone wears the black and white derby. Everyone supports them everywhere you go, and it was a real eye opener. Um, and on top of that, you had a manager that, if you made a mistake, he would come down and you got a ton of bricks. You had to handle his ferocious kind of work rate, but also he, he was demanding. Mm. I remember sort of my first week, a couple of players came up to me, Daryl Powell, uh, my namesake, we weren't related, even though everyone thought we were. He said, how are you finding the, the gaffer? And I said, I can't believe, it's like this, it's like this every day. If you handle it, you're fine. Mm. So straight away I thought, I've got to step up. Yeah. We got promotion. Um, but why I was signed was I played in a back four and everyone was virtually back fours back then. But because I had a willingness to drive forward and overlap my winger and play my winger and assist as much as I could, they played three at the back. They played three four one two, which no one no one played then yeah. in sort of the late mid nineties. And he saw me as a natural wing-back. But when I initially went, um, even though we got promoted, I found it quite tough. The transition of being with a wide player 
to being on your own. The only wide player. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you had to do the defensive work, but you had to attack. And I had to get my head around it. And I really worked on it that summer and that pre-season that I have to fit in. You know, we're in the big league, we're in the Premier League, but in sort of the championship as it was then, we teams couldn't handle it yeah. because you had two strikers, you had a number 10, uh, you had a, a, a midfield four, which were wing backs and two centre mids, and you had three at the back. And the three at the back, the sweeper, Stimak, would step in. Yeah. So teams didn't know how to handle this, it was brilliant. No one knows who to pick up who. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant. You know, nowadays, you see it all the time, you see three at the back, you see Diamond. But then, teams didn't know what to do. And I found it easier as I went on that even though I may have had a winger and a fullback, what tended to happen was the fullback would play so narrow to mark the number 10. Mm. Then the wide player didn't want to track back. So as I bombed forward, in the end, he had to come back. So then our left centre half get on the ball, and he would step it. It was yeah. brilliant. And plenty to aim for in the middle with your with your crossing. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. you know. Or um, we we would have to get the number ten on the ball. That was one of the things that Jim would say. Um, and it was great. It was a great time in my life um, playing in the higher league and playing with a team that was in the championship. And within six months, we're we're battling against the biggest sides in the country. Um, great time, you know. I look back on that time, real fondness. We moved to the new stadium, mm. you know, which not many players can do, and um, you know, we just grew and grew. And um, you know, I was there three years. And Jim has said, you know, he's put on record that was a mistake that they sold me, you know. Yeah, which ha what happened there? What, you moved to uh, Charlton for 825 grand, so yeah. but, you know, a bit more than, than Derby signed you for, but. You're really hitting a, a a great spell in your career. Yeah. What what was the sort of status of the two clubs at that stage? It, it, I Charlton mean, had just gone up right. from their infamous Char uh, Sunderland oh, playoff yes. final, right? Uh, which strangely I watched and didn't realise it's been three weeks I've been playing for them. Uh, so they just got promoted. Derby had been in the top league for two years, but he felt. He could get some money. The club needed some money and sold two or three of us. And he bought in a left back for free. So I felt it was good business. But he was put on record saying it was bad business, which I was, you know, I was, it was great to hear that on one hand. Yeah. But, you know, we loved the area, settled in the area. I loved the club. But sadly, these things happen. Yeah. Curbs uh, certainly got some good business out of you <laughs> yeah. at, at, at Charlton, another club that you became a absolute legend quite simply at for, for, for your performances and just for becoming a, a part of the club yeah. but uh, I'm right in saying you were relegated with Charlton the first season That's right. and then straight back up again the next yeah. year since since we've been doing this podcast I think only Newcastle have gone down from the Prem to the Championship and straight back up and we're, we're trying to, to work out I mean clear you know these guys come down with you know, huge wage bills and impressive Premier League quality players, but it seems like there's something bigger that stops an easy yeah. turnaround and, a, and an immediate promotion. So, you know, was there anything special that Charlton did to overcome that relegation and, and yeah. to basically start from scratch come August? 
I'll tell you why we bounced straight back up because this, he, he was very fair Curbs in that when the team went up it was only myself Danny Mills a couple of others joined he largely kept the group the same maybe they were budgeting and thinking <laughs> may not go well yep. maybe and he knew that squad could get back out and sure enough we, we got relegated on the last day it wasn't over and done with like a lot of teams now we gave ourselves a fighting chance right up until the 38th game but then we only lost Danny Mills in the summer he went to Leeds everyone stayed the same so every player and the manager stayed as well because you know these days important. you kind of think like the anger that is sometimes felt at a relegation yeah. and gets directed at A, the manager it's rare that they st stick around really um, and a lot of the players as well who the fans think are sort of synonymous with a failure of sorts yeah. so that didn't happen at all everyone would sort of kept their heads by the sound of things but there's a trend now isn't there that the team goes up Ala Fulham who were outstanding last year doesn't happen so much for them in the first few months oh, Stavisio's got to go and I'm thinking why? because if he if it doesn't work out he's the right man to get it back up because he just did yeah. but there's this trend to eliminate the man who got you in the position in the first place so Curb stayed and I think his relationship was important with Richard Murray and the board team the squad stayed the same we actually added good players from the football league Dean Kiley became the keeper um, we had a side ready made to be I suppose at least in the top six but we were the top one and we ran away with it uh, ourselves and Ipswich um, but we ran away with it came straight back up but what happened after that championship winning season which was brilliant it was a real real great journey for everyone we were ready for what laid ahead I don't think we were ready for the Premier League mm. I was a Premier League player yeah. joining Charlton but it was only myself and one or two others mm. but this time we were ready for it and it was a very good spell and Charlton at that, at that time were uh, well felt certainly like a mainstay in the, in the Premier yeah. League and, and constantly finishing higher than, than you might expect under Curbs. Yeah. Well, we finished seventh, should yeah. have been in Europe. Yeah. Um, but that year, um, I'm not sure if we were still banned from Europe or someone won a competition that meant we didn't qualify. Something happened. Disaster. Could have been in Europe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Charlton Athletic in Europe, you know. And, and from a personal level, the performances are still very, very high to the extent that you get the call-up from Sven yeah. uh, to play for England. Uh, and I hope you don't mind me saying that at that point you were the oldest England <laughs> debutant since Sid Owen in 1954. So y y you make your debut against Spain. But, I mean, I can imagine after a, a, just a, a very good half decade or maybe more in the Premier League you felt like that maybe you'd been overlooked did or, oh, or, yeah. yeah Ali to, to be honest with you that ship in my mind sailed many years before yeah, yeah. I was playing at a good level at a club I, I really enjoyed playing at and being at um, but we knew Sven was watching the games but at the time I assumed it was for Richard Rufus the centre back who was a real stalwart mm. uh, a wholehearted no-nonsense defender um, and 
I just remember it clearly now, the Friday turning up for training, so many press people there, the press officer at the time, she came running out, Jeanette said, come in, don't speak, and I said, why? I said, we've got Coventry away tomorrow, <laughs> you know, what, what, what are we talking about? And she said, well, there's rumours that you might be in the England squad. And I was, I was a bit confused. I said, no, nah, no, can't be me. She said, there's rumours, so don't say anything. We trained. Um, and then afterwards, on a Friday, if Alan Kirby pulls you up to his office, you think you're being dropped. Mm. And uh, I got sent up to the office and he handed me a fax, as it was in those days. It's from the FA. So yeah. I got chosen for the squad. I could not believe it. You know, I came downstairs and told the squad and uh, it was a, just a real surreal sort of moment. My phone didn't stop ringing on the way up to Coventry. I just remember feeling a bit on edge, the Coventry game, thinking all of a sudden everyone's looking at me, but you know, Sven was great. He just said, I've watched every team, I've watched every player, and this guy's caught my eye and I, I think he's ready for it. And uh, I've put him in the squad. And the rest was history, I played against Spain. So the back four in that game was yeah. Phil Neville, Sol Campbell, Rio Ferdinand, Chris Powell. Yeah. A Spain team that included Casillas in goal, Pep Guardiola in midfield and yeah. Raul up front. There's a great picture of me nutmegging Pep. <laughs> yeah, I've just got a postcard of it. I'd love someone to get a big well, picture of it. He left the centre circle. He did, yeah. <laughs> he did. Well, he tried to stop me. <laughs> <laughs> he felt uh, it was up to him to stop me. Yeah, it's a great picture of the two of us, um, which is a great moment. I mean, so many people were involved in that moment. You know, not only Charlton and putting them on the map, and they felt that they had arrived as a Premier League yeah. club then, and they got an England player. But also, I look back on Derby, Southend, Aldershot, Palace, my Sunday teams my school team I, I just felt all for them on that day and actually um, you know people were saying they remember watching me in the tunnel and I was so relaxed because I just felt well you know what this is it this is this is for real now and this is my moment and if it happens it happens if it doesn't I've been afforded the opportunity but it went really well you know that but it was only 45 minutes but it, it just went it just went so great and I was uh, I was so chuffed. It's amazing so to chuffed. have that, that moment of, of joy and clarity when I think everyone in, in every walk of life uh, is always, whatever they're doing, thinking, well, what's the next thing? Where do I need to get to next? Yeah. Okay, I've done that, great, but I'm not going to wait around and pat myself on the back. Where am I going to go next? And it's, you know, you sort of just went back through your path in reverse order. But yeah, I did. Coming up, that, that, that I imagine was the pinnacle. So yeah. just, it's just so nice to hear that you had that moment. That you weren't then for some reason going. What can I do? You know. No, no <laughs> um, it was just, yeah. it was just a real seminal moment in my life. Mm. You know, in my footballing career anyway. And I didn't want to forget anyone. And some good friends were at the game. My wife's at the game. My mum was at the game. Um, but I just remember Gareth Southgate, who came to the hotel. He was injured. Um, but we met at a hotel in Birmingham and he was playing for Villa. And uh, Already trying to impress the FA, clearly. Yeah. Had, a, had <laughs> yeah. a long game in Took mind. Took a long time, yeah. <laughs> he, he said, how do you feel? He said, what was it like when you walked into your room? 
I said, I know what you're going to say. That I saw the kit on the bed because everyone had their own room and your kit was already there. He said, did you hold it up? I said, yeah. I held up and thought, this isn't something from the sports shop. This is the real thing. I remember putting on the shirt thinking, right now, I'm seen as the best left back in the country. Right now, out of 60 million people, I'm the one chosen to wear the number three. I don't think anyone can describe it unless you go through that process. And that was just, it was phenomenal. I mean, in the end, Ashley Cole and Wayne Bridge put me to one side, but I had my moment, you know, and that, that is something I'll forever cherish. And people always ask about it now, even though yeah, I'm nearly course. 50, it's brilliant. How did it come about finding out that you weren't in the World Cup squad? Because I, I think you played five times in sort of late 2001, early yeah. 2002. Up to February, I think the last game. Yeah, I played. The squad Holland. must have been announced it in. Can't have been many games, if any, between your last appearance and the squad being announced. So it was that must have been, I suppose, not to, not to bring up a bad memory after such a good one, but a bit of a blow after after playing the last few I games. I kind of knew, though. Right. I kind of knew. I kind of. I think players sometimes do themselves a disservice when they say, "Oh, I didn't know." You can work it out. Yeah. And. Wayne and Ashley were terrific for their clubs at the time, absolutely terrific. And I got in the squad against Holland in February at the uh, Amsterdam Arena, played in that and then the next squad I wasn't in, I remember Sven contacting me and saying, you're not in this squad and I thought, well, unless there's an injury, I won't be, won't be making it and those two were flying. I didn't make it, and Japan career would have been wonderful experience. But um, you know, you have to move on from it. And I, you know, I carried on playing in the Premier League, which yeah. was great. So that was part one of NTT Twenty meets Chris Powell. There was so much to get through that we ended up spending an hour and a half together, and that's simply too long for one pod. So. Uh, there's part one, part two being released just over 24 hours after part one. So hopefully that'll give you a, a, a real hunger, a real hankering for more. In part two, we talk about Chris's managerial career, his views on the game and on his future as well. We do work hard to set up these interviews and we do have to do them in spare time, of course, outside of the normal podcast schedule so if you've got this far and if you've enjoyed the podcast if you're looking forward to part two we'd really appreciate a share or anything you can do to spread the word and send this around that would be absolutely fantastic and much appreciated